afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Don Rodriguez Ford, and I co facilitate with Jennifer Baltagar for the Genetic Engineering Society weekly seminar called the Colloquium. Welcome. Um, we are we're going to have uh, one of our AgBioFuse students introduce today's guest speaker, but before uh, Dolan does so, I wanted to leave some space if there are any updates or announcements, uh, any events, activities, anything that people want to share in this space before we get started. And I will jump on that by again bringing up <laughs> that the GES Center uh, has our GES Minor Fellowship that is now online. Uh, and we have sent out a lot of emails and we are um, doing a lot of announcement and publicity for it. Uh, so please, if you know any students that are interested, uh, this is a fellowship that would take place in the fall of 2024 for our nine credit GES minor. Um, we are gonna have priority consideration for the applications due March 15th and it's open to uh, all PhD, uh, master's and PhD students in social sciences, humanities, and natural sciences. Uh, so if you know anyone, please feel free to send them my way. I'm happy to talk to them or send them to the website with the online application. Um, does anyone have anything else they want to ask or add? Um, can they go do the captions? I've got it turned on. Nolan, can I get yep. you up here? All right, thanks, Don. Um, hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. Good to see everyone. Um, I'm Nolan Spiker, and I'm super excited to introduce uh, our speaker today, Grace Wiedrich. Um, Grace is a third-year PhD student in Communication, Rhetoric, and Digital Media, or CRDM, here at NC State. Um, we're actually in the same cohort, so we sort of started our journeys together, and it's been cool to um, take classes and see interests and work evolve over that time. Um, so I'm super stoked that she's here. Um, before coming to NC State, Grace earned her master's in English literature and writing from Eastern Washington University. Uh, today, she teaches professional writing uh, for the Department of English here at, at NC State. And um, her research primarily focuses on the rhetorical inter intersections of race, gender, and ability in uh, 20th century U.S. history. And her dissertation focus specifically within that is on the rhetoric of the eugenics movement um, in North Carolina, uh, with a special focus on reproductive rights and um, forced sterilization. So without further ado, I'll just uh, raise up here. Sorry. All right, morning or afternoon, I guess. Every time. Um, I'm gonna talk with y'all about today's uh, eugenics today. Um, and just like a brief content warning, um, since I am talking about the eugenics movement and talking about the uh, discrimination and abuse of uh, various groups of people. So just, I'm not necessarily getting in, into anything super graphic, but just a heads up that I am kind of talking about that today. Um, so this is um, today. I'll talk a little bit about early genetic theory, um, early beliefs about human heredity. I'll talk a little bit about uh, the eugenics movement in the U.S. as a whole, because it is a national movement, um, and I'll talk about resistance to that as well. And then I'll 
finish up with talking about North Carolina in particular. Um, and talk about what do we do with that information now today. So starting off with the scientific origins leading up to the eugenics. Um, so people have always been interested in why people are the way that they are. I mean, even if we go back to um, ancient Rome, people are wondering if certain people bred together, then how would you get more ideal people? Um, this picture up here is from chronology, um, which is from the early to mid 1800s. And they're looking at mapping the skull and looking at where characteristics are. Um, so, and then moving into the kind of mid to late 1800s, uh, we get some really um, interesting advances in biology with Darwin, who's um, evolutionary, evolutionary theory. He's looking at um, birds in the Galapagos. Um, um, so when he's looking at these birds, he notices that um, they're adapting to their environment over time. And so this actually gets kind of co-opted by Dalton. Um, and he kind of is the, he is the father of the eugenics movement. And he kind of um, came up with social Darwinism, which is applying Darwin's theories to people and kind of the social environment that we're in. Um, and then towards the end, there's a rediscovery of Mendel's work with um, his experiments with pea plants, um, which kind of showed that there are dominant and recessive traits that you can um, that are passed on in a statistically um, consistent way, um, which is, um, and all of these things kind of coalesce into making the um, eugenics movement what it is. Um, so kind of moving on to people and define eugenics finally. Um, so this is, um, Dalton's first usage of the word eugenics. Um, this is what he's talking about, which is the science of improving stock, which is by no means confined to questions of judicious mating, but which, especially in the case of man, takes cognizance of all influences that tend, in however remote degree, to give to the more suitable races or strains of blood a better chance of prevailing speedily over the less suitable than they otherwise would have had which is a bunch of fancy words and saying, study of how to breed the ideal human being. Uh, yeah. So when you're thinking about breeding the ideal human, you have to understand what the inheritable traits are when you're looking at the early 20th century, which ranges from everything from physical attributes, so like eye and hair color, all the way to like things that are more social that we would to think about like criminality. Um, so there's like a whole range of things that are all considered inheritable traits at this moment in history. So um, as you get later into the 20th century, there's kind of this pushback of like, well, what's really inherited genetically and like what is kind of from the environment in the classical eugenics era, so like the 19, up to the 1930s, there's no distinction because the thought was, well, either you get it biology, biologically from your parents, or you get it because that's how your parents raised you. So there was really no distinction of like, this is how biologically you're created and this is how like 
the environment is shaping. Okay, um, there are two different approaches to eugenics. Um, they're called positive and negative, and that's just kind of related to, to how things are applied more than anything else. A positive eugenics is talking about measures to incentivize um, fit people, appropriate people to reproduce um, to kind of sustain those desirable traits in the population. Whereas negative eugenics is talking about preventing the procreation of unfit people um, and kind of trying to get rid of those undesirable. So when you look about the practical implications of those things, um, there are a variety of things that were implemented. So you get things like uh, contests at fairs, um, where there are uh, fitter family contests where people would come in with their families and talk about their lineage and kind of like showcasing the, the inheritance of traits over time. We also get a bunch of um, educational initiatives. So um, biology textbooks during this time um, talked about eugenics a lot, even up to the 1960s in a positive manner and talking about how traits are inherited through the blood and using kind of these more general terms rather than um, talking about uh, DNA and chromosomes and genes more specifically. You also see things like sterilization, immigration, restrictions, marriage laws, and segregation. Um, some of these things um, were happening also outside of the eugenics movement, but what the eugenics movement did is it gave um, some scientific versus statistical um, rhetoric that could support these things. So like with immigration restriction, that was happening um, throughout the entire 20th century, but once you get to the 1920s, um, eugenicists are really encouraging people to um, look at like do physical studies of the people that are coming into like Ellis Island and doing uh, intelligence testing. Uh, this is an example kind of of some of the displays at these um, fairs and these critical contests. This one's called Mandel's Theater, and this is showing the inheritance for hair color. Um, this one's blonde, and these are nets. Um, and talking about kind of the how traits are inherited with the Mendelian kind of look, Mendelian ratios. That's right. Um, this one um, is show is a flashing sign. So there's little like light bulbs. And they would flash every um, once in a while, kind of relating to this one. So this one's every 16 seconds a person is born in the United States. And this one's every seven and a half minutes a high-grade person is born in the United States. Um, so these kind of, these made-up statistics, there's no, there's no evidence for any of this. These are just made-up statistics that were passed around throughout this time period um, that were shared and kind of showing at these state fairs, like, kind of engage the top of the social uh, population and kind of in believing these things. Um, these are both from uh, 1926, by the way. Cool. So, big picture, that was all of, like, the ideas and theories. I'll get a little bit into the, this, like, dates. Yeah. 
for the entire eugenics movement. And I picked these dates not because they're necessarily like related to eugenics all in the conventional way, but because these are key turning points in what the movement's doing. Um, so in 1927, there's a court case with Buck B. Bell that legalized um, coerced sterilization across the entire nation. And so after that, you see a lot of states um, put these into effect, um, including North Carolina, which we'll get to a little later. Um, and then with 1945, you get the end of World War II, um, which um, a lot of early scholars uh, like to claim that this is really the beginning of, like this is the end for the eugenics movement that everybody saw was happening in Germany. And they're like, this is awful, we're done. Um, but that's not that's not technically true. There's, this is a period of time where there's a lot of shifting ideas. So some groups did kind of see what was happening in Germany and they're like, wow, this is terrible. And they stopped their support, but other groups, um, uh, also saw what's happening in Germany and said, this is what happens if you don't like stop us. Like this is ideal, like they did it. Um, so there's like a lot of different kind of ideas that are going on around in the middle of the century. And then when you get to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the ADA in 1990, you're seeing like a lot of formal protections that are happening for um, these groups that have been uh, historically oppressed the eugenics movement. So that's a lot of negatives. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to talk briefly about resistance because there was a lot. Not everybody believed all of this. Um, a lot of people didn't. Um, so there are four kind of main areas that there was resistance to this eugenics movement. First, the um, big argument was that it violates individual rights, specifically when you're thinking about forced uh, sterilization and things like that. Um, so there are a lot of court cases um, happening that where people are arguing that this violates um, individual rights in due process. However, a lot of those court cases also did not go in, go in the plaintiff's favor. And so um, it took a while for um, uh, course, civilizations legally um, or to become illegal. And then also there was a argument that it was a form of cruel and unusual punishment um, because uh, people convicted of crimes were often sterilized against their will. Um, and there was pushback against this argument because of um, Mainly the mention of the vasectomy, which people um, compared to no more than um, a dental procedure. So making it very a very, very small thing and kind of minimizing the effect that that would have long-term on people's lives and their voices. Uh, but you also get a lot of scientific advances during this time, which is really cool. I mean, by the 1930s, people know that uh, genes are a thing, chromosomes are a thing. Um, and that um, not all of the, not all human traits are actually passed on with Mendelian ratios. It's a lot more complicated than Genesis one like claimed. Um, so you get like pushback in the scientific community as well um, of just like, this is like, this is just blat blatantly false uh, as research progresses. 
And then finally, you have um, religious arguments um, resisting eugenics from moral and theological perspectives. So kind of pushing it back, back against the idea that man can control nature and kind of that eugenicist thought was that if nature, if in our civilizations, nature can no longer kind of weed out the weak, then we have to do it. And so from a, one of the religious arguments is kind of like, that's not man's place to do that. Um, so you get kind of arguments with that as well. North Carolina, <laughs> finally. <laughs> okay. So, key dates for North Carolina, specifically with uh, sterilization law. So, 1919 was when we first had our sterilization law in North Carolina. However, nobody was sterilized under this law until we get the law updated in 1929 after the Buck v. Bell case. Um, and then um, the law is updated again after they, after they're sued. And so they kind of reshape, uh, reshape the law a little bit um, to kind of show that there is more of a due process that people can appeal. And so that's why they put in, they put into place the eugenics board. Um, I would hear all of these uh, sterilization appeals and petitions and decide who would be not me. Um, and then lastly, um, in 1976, um, uh, the 1929 law or 1933 law was actually still upheld in North Carolina. Um, so like you see kind of even like this slate into the century, like this is still happening and people are still being forcibly sterilized. Sorry, I forgot. What's interesting about North Carolina in particular is that um, once you hit the 50s and 60s, the amount of sterilization actually increases in the state. Um, it, it kind of ramps up, um, and which is very different from anywhere else in the country. Um, I'm, I would have to look into more about why that necessarily is in North Carolina, but um, you do see that. And then also most of the sterilizations happen after 1945. So this is a page from the Eugenics Board in North Carolina's um, their manual, their kind of annual report. There we go. Um, and it kind of it explains the legislative background that I kind of that I would just went over, but also it talks about the purposes of eugenical sterilization. Um, the first one says that sterilization. Rather last okay. sterilization <laughs> has one effect only. It prevents parenthood. It is not a punishment, it is a protection and therefore carries no stigma or humiliation. It in no way unsexes the party sterilized. Sterilization is proved by the families and friends of the sterilized. And lastly, it is proved by medical staffs, probation officers, and social workers generally, wherever they've come in contact with patients who have been sterilized. So this is kind of the rhetoric that the board is putting out there. Um, 
and just saying like, which is also just common, is that like sterilization does nothing other than preventing parenthood. It's very common. Um, but it's more complicated than that, obviously. Um, so let's talk looking at social workers in particular. Um, in North Carolina, social workers were allowed to um, petition for um, the people that they saw to be sterilized. Um, and there are records where some social workers would withhold um, benefits to the, the people that they're, the cases that they're working on until they agree to sterilization. So there's a lot of coercive measures happening. On the flip side, um, since social workers are regularly seeing and interacting with these families, um, some women would approach them and ask if they could be sterilized as a form of permanent birth control because it was very unreliable um, and dangerous or there are terrible side effects um, that are happening uh, as kind of the development of birth control is going on throughout this century as well. So you kind of get a weird dichotomy of like there are a bunch of people being forcibly sterilized, but there's also like people who are um, kind of using the system for their benefit. Which is kind of cool. Okay. In North Carolina, there's at this point in time, at this point in time, uh, there's 7,600 approximately recorded sterilizations that happened. Again, the majority after 1945. Um, and I'm sure that there are sterilizations that are also not recorded. Um, this is this is not an odd practice in. There are records of, um, even beyond sterilization, there are records of doctors just um, uh, putting like a long-term birth control in when they're doing like a procedure um, without the patient. So there's also stuff like that happening. So the Human Betterment League of North Carolina published this pamphlet, or this is a page from the 1950, explaining the supposed benefits of sterilization. Um, so I'll read it. Um, the average feeble-minded parent cannot be expected to provide good heredity, a normal home, intelligent care, to say nothing of the many other things needed to bring up children successfully. Like running a train, teaching school, or handling money, the job of parenthood is too much to expect for feeble-minded men and women. Um, so you kind of, you see this argument a lot during this time period, which is wild even that's the 1950s. That's like, I don't know, it just seems so odd to me that this is happening so late in the century sometimes when I think about it. Um, but, um, the kind of argument was like, this is beneficial for literally everybody involved. It saves the government money for not uh, paying for uh, people on welfare. It uh, makes it so that the people who are sterilized don't have to be parents. And it makes it so that people around them and their, their friends and families don't have to end up taking care of those kids. Like it just like, and it's better for these kids that don't exist because they would have terrible life. So it's like all of these kind of ideas and assumptions and and rhetoric around it, kind of trying to show that, like, this is the best way to do it and cause the least harm um, to prevent um, the inheritance of negative traits in the community. 
So with activism during this time, you get some interesting stuff happening also because um, with reproductive rights, um, people are using um, eugenic arguments to kind of support why you should have reproductive rights and saying that if people have access to birth control or abortion or sterilization freely, then you're limiting the reproduction of the unfit class. Um, and um, Clarence Gamble in particular, he did his birth control studies um, in part in North Carolina. And he was arguing that uh, people who are blinded or degenerate or poor or unintelligent, all terrible, um, <laughs> needed some simple form of birth control so that they could use it reliably and uh, so that they would know what to do like, consistently. They could not be trusted with more like complex yet safer or reliable forms of birth control. So, yes, that. And then on the other hand, with kind of civil rights stuff, you get activists that are resisting these reproductive um, reforms. Um, particularly, you get a lot of uh, black male activists that are res um, resisting it because of those eugenic arguments. Um, so, the idea is that. Um, should not prevent um, black women from having children because that will lead to the downfall of the black community. And the idea of like, they're only having us use birth control in, because they want to eliminate the black. So that's why you're getting kind of this pushback from other communities in response to these reproductive rights arguments. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> um, uh, so I talked through some like key legislation kind of happening throughout the century that's um, related to the eugenics movement. Um, I also talked a little bit about education with like high school biology textbooks um, that are published through the 1960s um, supporting the eugenics movement. Um, and then after that, they just kind of don't talk about it. Um, and then you get public health kind of education that's using this eugenic rhetoric to support um, sterilization and reproductive control. Um, and then lastly, I talked a little bit about activists using this eugenics movement as kind of support for and resistance to um, access to reproductive. Okay, so what do we do with all this information? Let me do it back. Um, so I think that the eugenics movement in the 20th century US is a good case study for kind of what happens when um, scientists interact with the public and the public just runs with it, regardless of then what scientists are saying, like as research moves forward. So um, I think it's interesting to look at kind of um, how people have taken kind of the budding ideas of science at the beginning of the century and then um, using them kind of to suit their own needs. 
And then even today, we can still see remnants of eugenic ideas um, when you're talking about uh, reproductive rights, particularly with the reproductive rights of people with disabilities. There are a lot of um, there's a lot of tension still with that. Mostly, I think that this history leaves us with a lot of reflections um, on the ways that we kind of discuss uh, scientific research and the way that the research is communicated with the public. So, like, what is really the best way to communicate updates in research, or like, how do we avoid research being used in ways that uh, support harmful public actions? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I do research on this, I'm not right there. If I figure it out, I'll let you all know. Um, but I hope to learn more about it as I continue researching the past and like thinking about how it applies to the future. Okay, so um, just a reminder for everyone online, uh, feel free to join in our discussion. If you would like to ask a question directly, use the raise your hand function and we'll call on you. If you'd like for me to read the question aloud for you, put it in the chat. Question, when was forced sterilization outlawed? It's still in the books actually in a lot of states. So it's um, federally outlawed. Um, but it's still in a lot of state laws in North Carolina. It was um, officially repealed in 2005. Um, yeah, and that went along with a public apology and reparations. So, but that was only after like a bunch of research came out and kind of highlighted stuff in like 2003. Yes. Um, thank you for your presentation. Thank you for your beautiful slides, which helped Make the really palatable material more palatable. Um, and my question is about well, that pamphlet that you showed with the teacher and the parents. I'm curious if you know who the intended audience of such propaganda were, who, they, who those communities were, um, and just what that could possibly say about some of the implications for communication like communication channels? As far as I know, this is just like widely distributed in North Carolina, just like whoever, like whoever they could get it to, the better. Um, I think like this, for me, this was an example of kind of like public education like and public health education. Um, even though, I mean, it definitely has a slant, that's right, yes. Um, so, I mean, this is really simple writing. Um, I think with the pictures and like it's like it's visually appealing to look at. It's written in pretty simple language, so I would think that it's kind of geared towards um, just like common people uh, and people that uh, like families and friends of people that uh, might be getting sterilized, people that might be getting sterilized, kind of that. That would be my guess. I just, I don't know if this is relevant, but I was recently at a, a different pharmacy than I normally go to in a different part of town. In the parking lot, there was like a giant camera on the pole and all these signs about how you were being recorded and watched. Mm -hmm. And it felt really uh, hostile. Yeah. 
and comparing that to like the usual pharmacy I go to in a different part of town and just the way that all this messaging is not ubiquitous and it, yeah. it differs. Yes, so, that's really good, but I just wondered if this was maybe targeted certain communities, like maybe it would have been up at this pharmacy, but not the other pharmacy. I guess we're sort of connected to your original question. Um, like on the one hand, you're sort of talking about North Carolina and a state sponsored genetics movement. Um, how many of these sort of like organisms existed? Have you done some research on that? Okay. We're talking about like North Carolina. In North like, Carolina specifically, but I I could not give you a specific number, but it's pretty common. Um so the the thing with the Genetics movement is that since it's targeted at groups that are normally discriminated against anyways, um, there wasn't a lot of public pushback. So like there is a lot of kind of these groups that are like like human betterment that are kind of framing it as like this is how we like make better, like this is how we better ourselves, this is how we better our community. So there are a lot of those kinds of groups that are popping up that are kind of like um, nonprofit. Did you notice anything about the sort of rhetorical strategies that are used uh, between the groups like that and then the state? Like, do they rely on different types of strategies? Um, I didn't see a lot of the difference because um, when I like this, like these exact words are used in like pamphlets and stuff. Sure. Um, I think they, I think I technically pulled these from. Uh, California's sterilization, like laws and stuff also. But those kind of like words are used frequently. They use this like the burden of parenthood, that specific phrase is used a lot in China, like just really trying to make all this seem like a good positive thing um, because there is kind of, there is pushback, you know? So like trying to resist that as much as possible. Sorry, I'll go last. Um, yeah, maybe ours will be related. I, first of all, like great presentation. This is really heavy material, and, like support research and with no And also, I've looked at a fair amount of 1950s pamphlets, and this is like if you could like put in the dictionary like what is a 1950s pamphlet? It's this like this. It it looks crazy, but it's like. This kind of stuff is about everything. It's about fallout shelter. It's about food. It's about this. So, empties um, were crazy time. Um, the, my actual question, though, is like I would love for you to sort of unpack a little bit more um, when you're talking about science and scientists. I imagine there's, of course, developments that are happening in biology, but also there are conversations happening in psychology and other fields. And so, you know, there's one argument that maybe that I think you sort of alluded to, which is like reason why genetics, why eugenics um, sort of falls out of favor is because there are changes in science and it's that gives people new information to push back against this. But these laws are not taken off the books until 2005. And so there's this question of like both like the staying power, which I think is what you're interested in, but also like the extent to which these conversations were happening. Within science, and not so much there is a science public 
piece, but the extent to which conversations about I'm thinking about my friends who were brought sugar in the 19th century, and there's like some races of sugar. So this is how you know this lang the way this language then gets recycled back. Just open question to like reflect on like the like kind of untitled scientists and debate. Well, within biology, well, it's really just like a whole bunch of like sciences and social sciences that are kind of invested in this conversation. So you get like biologists who are saying like, this is way too simple of an idea. But then you also get like psychiatrists who are saying like, no, I see how this moves from per like from person to person in this family. Um, Yeah, you get like there's like a bunch of people. Sorry, Brain's like, what? You no, sorry. I was like, let me just invite you to talk about fifteen things. You're good. But there's a lot of conversation that's like cross disciplinary um, as well, and they're just kind of like I mean, one like very extreme example is like um, he was a biologist. Um, Basically, to sum it up, said uh, other than the fact that women are necessary for reproduction, like that, if we could only make it white, straight men, like from Northern Europe, like Scandinavian men, that is the ideal human. But unfortunately, you, you need women for reproduction. Sometimes they're just so safe. So, like, you get them, you get the time for that, which is like pretty like extreme. Um, and then you're also getting a lot of temperate views that are like. Well, coerced sterilization is pretty extreme, but I see no involuntary, so sterilization could be useful. Or um, sterilization in general is like absolutely terrible. Like that's awful. You should not do that to people. How about we just split people up in institutions and just keep them separate so they still can reproduce, but you're not also doing surgery. So, does that help? Yeah, so we have a couple of questions online. Uh, do you see any connection with previous eugenic movement and the current state of gynecology and or medicine as a whole? Don't get me started on gynecology. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I still see kind of these like trends with eugenics happening. So because um, what happens over time is that the arguments change. Um, so it's not necessarily that the whole idea of like, how do we make better people that like, that is an ancient idea that we've, that's been with humanity for like long, long, long time. Um, so, but the arguments are changing because some of like, some of these things are falling out of fashion, you know? So like, well, you can't forcibly uh, sterilize people anymore. Well, you can't just institutionalize a bunch of people forcibly you can't. Um, uh, but these things still happen. Um, they're just really quiet. Um, and so then with gynecology, there's lots of weird stuff um, for like the start of gynecology was all because of um, research done on slave women. And so uh, Sims just bought a bunch of women and did um, surgery on them without any anesthetics. 
Um, and he would like widely tell people that like it's just minor surgery to like have a hysterectomy. Um, and so, and or like arguing that like black women are sorry, sorry, this is why I have the content warning. <laughs> like black women or Irish women don't feel pain in the same way, so they don't need anesthesia. Um, which like that that kind of idea was taught in medical textbooks for a long, long time. People still believe people still believe it, like it's still yeah. taught. Um so like, so like I still see kind of trends in gynecology where like you're getting these ideas. Um and also with gynecology, like oh sorry. Just if if women are put under at like a teaching hospital, they're allowed to like do like uh, like a pap smear like without your consent. Mm -hmm. um, while you're under and if you're not there for that, um, with like their students and just teaching them stuff, um, which I think is kind of falls into not necessarily eugenics, but kind of the history of gynecology being kind of controlled by gynecology power primarily. This is also one line. Yeah, it's yikes. I have to take breaks from my from my research because it is really heavy. Um, so, and and then another question is, could you um, repeat your or go back to the slide where you have a quotation about controlling nature? I think they would just like to see that again. Was it the religious one? Maybe this one. This was the only quote that I had. Is this? So, so there was one under the religion. We talked about the whole relationship. Like, yeah. uh, nature. Uh, wait for the combination of the chat. This yeah. is the only quote I have directly in my head. Is this the quote that you were looking for? It, oh, it was a comment you made, maybe? Oh, okay. Then I would have to assume that it was. It was, yeah. So, um, with the so when you go back to Darwin, so the environment that these birds are in is different. Maybe it is nature versus nurture. And so we're also live streaming today with G with the class uh, genetics four fifty six epigenetics development and disease. So we have some additional questions coming in. Just to let you know what this is coming from. So. If it's on this slide, then there's no distinction in classical eugenics period between nature and nurture as we kind of think about it now. It's just you get it all from your parents. It's all passed through the blood. It's like the phrase used, or through the germplasm. Um, it's also used. Um, so like you just, just inherit all of it. Um, and there's nothing that you could do to change it. So education, a lot of people um, argue, like that doesn't matter. Like you are, from the moment you're born, you are what you are. You always be that. Um, so, all right. I've seen your hand for a while. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, I'm curious if you can, if you're willing to kind of draw connections with the language that is used in these pamphlets and by government, by these groups who are promoting eugenics, and the language that we use today in politics, uh, particularly by right wing politicians. Um, especially for like issues like immigration or other current affairs. Um, like immigration, um, 20th century, they're thinking about these are people coming in that will pollute our like people. It's kind of the rhetoric that was used. Um, and so like 
they would do really intensive um, evaluations of people that are coming in. And even if you were in the country for a while and they decided that one of your conditions was pre-existing your immigration, they would deport you. Um, so there's things like that that are happening of like, you can't, like they need to keep a really high quality first, like the high quality of the person, people that are coming in so that our society would be high quality and like kind of maintain this. So there's kind of that, um, like current immigration stuff. Uh, there's like the... There's an idea of like people are going to steal our jobs. So there's this kind of weird thing. But there's also like um, just kind of uh, being personalizing to people that are like immigrants um, and kind of like turning people into not. But I think still kind of prevails of kind of like making people like animalistic, which is happening throughout the 20th century all over the place. And I still think that is kind of frankly. Yeah, and, and I think even using the similar terminology that you that they used back then, like polluting the blood, like that's mm -hmm. been used by or Donald Trump, I believe, you know, on the campaign trail, right? Um, so I'm just curious, like how much that language still exists today, but maybe in different shapes and forms. Um, I used to teach a science communication class. And when I taught about eugenics, most students were completely shocked that this happened in our country. And so I'm also curious, like what do you think about how this topic should be taught or would be taught? Put it in our political climate, be taught in a science class like in elementary school or high school maybe elementary school is a little young but no no like people who are black and brown people have conversations yeah. that are you know pretty serious with their elementary school kid yeah so i'm just sorry i threw a bunch at you and i got kind of hyped up about it but i'm pretty passionate about it i think that this is something that should be taught um because people still use the same arguments if nothing else like people still have the same arguments and the same like ideas are here they just like left it in the past is kind of how it like it's kind of how it looks because a lot of people want to say like well after uh, world war ii everybody was freaked out and they're like no 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 this is terrible which just isn't true um some people definitely were like Ooh. they're like i'm not thinking it would go that far that's crazy but also some people like were like hmm, let's we don't mean it necessarily like that, but like, how can we kind of modify it and kind of shift language of how we talk about this to kind of achieve some, like the same effects that we want? Um, so I think with like talking about it in the present, I think it's really important. It's like this is like a centuries long like thing in U.S. history. Like that's a big piece of it, about, and it overlaps with so many other things that we do talk about, some rights movement, um, women's rights, like. A bunch of stuff that you're talking about, like you still like I think biology and science history, like should get talked about in those contexts as well. If not only like or I think in part because like whatever people do research really does have like strong implications in like broader society, even if people don't think about it necessarily. They're just like, oh, I'm just curious. 
Um, like, but that's also interacts with both the broad public and not like, I love research. Like I love learning new stuff. So I'm not like saying don't look into stuff. But I think it's important to like also think about the repercussions of what you find. Thank you. Okay, well, I, I'll just echo like that point. I, so one of my questions was, um, like often in this room, uh, in the GES Center, I talk a lot about public engagement, about more emerging biotechnologies. And I, I wonder if there's, maybe this is less a question than a comment, but I wonder about the consequences of doing some public engagement around really anything like genetics, um, with an audience or a community that maybe does have an understanding or knowledge of this history, um, even more so than like the scientists who there, who's there, not you know, and what the consequences of that sort of like one person knowing or being in touch with the history and one person not. Um, I wonder about the consequences for about public engagement with that. Mm -hmm. um, but. So, like, if the speaker like doesn't really like a scientist doesn't really know about this history, and somebody in the audience is like, "What about all of these things?" Yeah, or I mean, just a general disconnect, and you don't necessarily have to answer it. It's more of a thinking out out loud. Um, my real sorry. It's also, like a question about what the dangers of meaning, like being along with it. Is that a part of the question? Um, no, I'm more so just asking, like. If, if there can immediately be a disconnect in the public communication that's occurring, if the history of, of eugenics is really not acknowledged or noticed at all in like a public communication event or something like that, um, if that, that could create friction or disconnect or just sort of resistance or lack of acceptance to a technology that we all talk about, uh, or what would it mean to like start presentation on genetics topic with some acknowledgement of that history. Uh, yeah. Okay, that really wasn't my question. <laughs> my, my question was actually more like, a lot of this is gonna rely on archival work, I imagine, um, and or has, and I just wondered how easy or difficult it has been to get pamphlets in these, these sorts of archives. I mean, that is an amazing thing. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of digital collections that you can find that, like, so it's not that hard. Things that I found, I can find in, like, it's like, you have to, like, I guess, know how to search for it. Um, but you can find it pretty easily. Uh, I will say with um, North Carolina in particular, the state has sealed a lot of the records. Um, and other states across the country have destroyed kind of their eugenics records that they've had. So like, you can find some stuff and some stuff will be out of the open. It's locked down or it's gone because of kind of the state's response to public kind of engagement and like surprise and kind of discuss with this in this century. So can you FOIA seal record? Can you what? FOIA? Freedom. Freedom of Information Act request. Yes, but they, so they basically around, they know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because um, when you specifically with like sterilization records, the um, they say no because they medical it's medical yeah, and like people are still alive. Like there's still people, and they, like you know, like so like that's why they say no. So some of it you definitely could, but some of it it will be heavily redacted. 
Okay, can we get one more question online? Uh, Melissa Ramirez asks, given the ways that the eugenics movement persists in medicine policy, and especially for the disabled community, could you comment on hard-fought wins for the disability justice community and where our efforts currently focused? Um, just, uh, I feel like it's kind of a late response, but um, I mean, throughout the 20th century, you kind of get a bunch of um, court cases and uh, laws that are happening, um, especially after World War II, because of veterans coming back um, with disabilities um, from the war. So you get a lot of um, momentum from that going into like going into the 60s and 70s and disability rights movement is happening at the same time as like racial and civil rights. Like there's stuff happening in like along the same same time. Um, and then I mean the ADA was a big thing, and then the amendments to that since then have been big things. In terms of kind of reproductive stuff with disability rights, um, based on what I know at this very second, <laughs> so I could be wrong, um, I know that there's like a lot of talk about kind of uh, prenatal screening and aborting um, babies that with um, uh, birth defects. Um, mm -hmm. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of big feelings mm -hmm. with that. A lot of big opinions and a lot of big discussions in ethics and biomedical ethics about like what is acceptable um, and like so there's kind of that scope of it that I'm familiar with. That's some really interesting part. I've read some of the ethics papers, um, but ethicists, the way that they work is like it has to apply in all circumstances or none. So it's like, it's very extreme examples. Um, and so that can be with disability rights um, kind of scholars and activists interacting with that field. I've seen some weird conflict because of like misunderstanding the genre, um, but also like they're like, it's it's different. I think sometimes to deal with ethics as in like the has to be a universal principle and then dealing with like world is a little bit shades of gray. Um, so like kind of dealing with like what people feel and like how the public perceives things is very different. Well, actually, I'm sorry, but we're gonna have to cut it off. Um, if you're willing to stay a couple of minutes, maybe people in here with questions could ask. But um, I want to make sure everyone online uh, is free to leave. Anyway, help me thank uh, Grace for a very interesting conversation. <laughs> Thank you everyone for really good questions and a good discussion. Next week we'll have David Andel um, speaking to us, so please come in person and online for that. Okay, thank you.